0: You were listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Well, COVID-19 has quickly changed the landscape here on the islands. A number of confirmed cases now at seven linked to travel. So far, no evidence that it's community spread yet. There have been daily news conferences as things have changed. HPR's Kuve Hirishi joins us live. She attended one of those media briefings over the weekend. Good morning.
1: Good morning, Catherine. Yes, over the weekend, uh, tripled in terms of cases, confirmed cases here uh, in Hawaii, I was taking a look at the neighbor islands because I know uh, we had uh, prior to the weekend two Oahu residents or one Oahu resident uh, and another who had contracted the virus here uh, or on that cruise ship. But this next. So the first neighbor island case came in Friday night on Kauai, where two mainland visitors, an adult couple from Indiana tested positive for COVID-19 and then a day later Maui County announced their first case uh, in Air Canada flight attendant who says she may have come into con- close contact with a positive corona case virus while in Germany. Uh, So all three are currently in isolation while health uh, department officials try to backtrack their travel itineraries and alert anyone that may have come into contact uh, along that route. Now, in the case of the couple on Kauai, uh, state health officials tell us that two flew into Maui from the mainland and began experiencing symptoms, cough, fever, trouble breathing. They even visited urgent care clinic uh, on Maui where one of them tested negative for the flu, uh, but they proceeded to fly to Kauai uh where they again visited an urgent care clinic there, got prescribed, one of them got prescribed antibiotics, and I think a total of 10 days had passed um, before they had uh, admitted themselves to Wilcox Memorial and, and disclosed that they had come into close prolonged contact with a positive uh, COVID-19 patient. And so, as we know, this, this virus is virtually invisible, right? There, there are individuals who may have contact, uh, contracted it and not even know Um, And then there, uh, but in this case, where you know you've come into close contact, prolonged contact with a positive uh, coronavirus patient, we asked state epidemiologist Sarah Park whether disclosing that sort of information, if you know, uh, should be mandated sort of at the front end. And here's what she had to say.
0: It's not always a purposeful non-disclosure or whatever. We don't know, actually, even what what these two may may or may not have been thinking. Maybe they, they're they sick, they didn't realize, you know, they're on vacation. So, you know, the last thing they like is that they got sick while they're here, and now they got to deal with it. So they're just trying to get in, get me some medicine, get out.
1: Uh, but uh, this has left some residents, uh, particularly those on, uh, either working in the visitor industry or on these airlines, uh, in Kauai, on Kauai and Maui a bit concerned that they may have had contact. And so trying to figure out, giving the information that we can to uh, those residents, we've got Kauai District Health Officer Dr. Janet Behrman, who's been tasked with interviewing the couple, this Kauai couple, and explaining the process uh, authorities are taking when it comes to uh, this close contact tracing we are tracing all of the places that they went because they were not feeling well they were not out and about as much as many visitors are but most of the contact that we think they had in the community was casual contact passing people in the store doing a transaction with a cashier ordering a meal and those kinds of short uh, contact are considered casual and do not pose a risk to our community but some people may have had closer contact. And close contact means being face-to-face for 10 minutes or more with separated by less than three feet of distance. It sounds very, you know, like these are small details, but that can help a lot of uh, folks out there who are thinking, okay, did I come into contact uh, with these people? And we've sort of um, have the details of their timeline, uh, travel itineraries on our website. Uh, but if those, if there is anyone who uh, begins to experience symptoms, I think. After figuring out if you had close contact and thinking that you might, uh, kind of pay attention to your body and see uh, if you get those symptoms. If you do, go ahead and contact your uh, your healthcare provider. Uh, yesterday, uh, in another press conference, Governor David Ige, you know, this idea of all these cases being travel related. We uh, when we went to the press conference, he had said, you know, uh, he has no authority to ban travel to the state at this point. That's a federal uh, that's a federal authority, and, and and that also airport screenings would be ineffective because you've got tens of thousands of people coming through. and uh, not sure that would be the best use of resources, but that frustration is something that the mayors on uh, both Maui and Kauai have sort of been trying to deal with, I think, early on, the frustration over cruise ships and and whether or not uh, we can ban at the county level them from coming in uh Kauai mayor derek kawakami uh, sort of gave this uh, ahead of his state of the county address had uh expressed that frustration uh to the people of Kauai.
2: i've urged that all incoming cruise ships not disembark passengers while at port i understand that this will be detrimental for our economy and pose difficulties for our local businesses however Because we are still learning about this virus that has no cure and no vaccine, we cannot jeopardize the health and safety of our people, especially those in our high-risk group. It has been made clear to me that my power as mayor does not allow me the authority to restrict the cruise ship industry, which is frustrating because there is no one better equipped to make decisions about our island home than those that live, work, and call our island home.
1: So, kind of sharing the sentiment of a lot of neighbor islands, I think, in this, uh, trying to figure out this, um, how to deal with COVID 19. I think uh, two days later, the Cruise Line uh, International Association had issued a directive uh, to all cruise uh, ships to take a moratorium over the next uh, 30 days. Uh, no. Coming into port here in Hawaii, so um, that's but the a relief <laughs> for some, I think. Uh, but the tourism industry, uh, as we know, and you know, the economic blow that, that yes. these ships typically carry—thousands of passengers—and so these decisions um, will have a uh, a long-term bearing on the right. Economy so it's though.
0: not government uh, blocking these ships coming in; it's the, it's the association, the industry, voluntarily saying, okay. We're gonna hit the pause button, but it does affect a lot of small businesses, folks who would normally rely on that income being dropped in these communities. So it's we're gonna feel this
1: exactly, and and on the neighbor islands in in areas where um, you know uh, there's a higher dependence, a, a larger dependence on uh, that tourism industry for those jobs, for that money coming in. Uh, I think that's something that we're gonna be keeping an eye on,
0: right? And and there's got to be a balance, right? Because as you get to these smaller islands, smaller uh, medical facilities, fewer resources, maybe fewer respirators. And so, yeah, you just want to be able to make sure that you can take care of your community. And and the same thing was being echoed, I think, on Maui as well, right?
1: Right. Maui uh, Mayor uh, Mike Victorino had joke that he would go out and and you know take a surfboard out himself to make sure that the (laughs) cruise ships weren't coming in uh but they had initially uh jumped on that 60-day request for a 60-day moratorium so right now we've got 30 days um thanks to the industry but i think moving forward and depending on uh, what happens with covid uh, community spread and whatnot i think we're going to see more of um business decisions needing to be made uh, for health and safety purposes,
0: right, and then we've got a number of news conferences that are scheduled today. People reevaluate. You know, what do we do with the legislative session? What do we right. do with, uh, with with schools, um, particularly if you've got you know cases that are linked to the schools? I think there was one uh, here on Oahu. So, people being really cautious about um, you know what could happen.
1: And where and where we can find that information. So a lot of what we're trying to do here at, at Hawaii Public Radio is to get you that information, verify it before we put it out so that uh, we can give everyone the tools they need to kind of um, go through this.
0: Right. Because you've got to make some key decisions about your family care mm-hmm. child care and and what do you do if you don't have a paycheck coming in? you know, how do, how do we deal with this? Because it is a it is a health crisis that we're dealing with unprecedented.
1: Exactly. And I think we'll, we'll be, we, you'll be doing more of that this week as well. And I think uh, everyone is sort of just trying to bear down and figure out what to do next.
0: All right. Thanks so much. Yes. That was HBR's Kuve Hirishi talking about the situation uh, on the neighbor islands with COVID-19. is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Right now, it's backyard quiz time. Unihua, Olehua ole hoa, oni Umulokai,
3: oni
4: Umau, <laughs> oni hoa,
0: for today's quiz, we're putting on our hiking boots, applying generous amounts of zinc oxide, and trekking over to the southern tip of the Big Island. Our destination, Papakolea Beach in the Ka'u District. To get to the beach, you have to hike over two and a half miles through rugged pastureland and then climb down a steep cliff. Be warned, though, that although not too challenging, it will get really hot since there's no cover from the sun. It's said to be well worth the effort because as soon as you hit the beach, one of the first things you'll notice is the olive-colored sand. The green sand in this area is made from the continual beating of the waves that have eroded it that is made of basalt lava, rich in olivine, a silicate mineral, uh, containing iron and magnesium. Hawaii's Papakolea Beach is one of only four green sand beaches found in the world. For today's quiz, can you name the other three locations? Call 941-3689 or one 941 3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right.
5: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose realtors and staff proudly support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawai'i's people and places. Locations, welcome home.
0: Our lives are changing daily and in some instances hourly as officials try to avoid a mass onslaught of patients and pressure on our healthcare systems. We're checking in regularly with the head of the Hawaii Healthcare Association. Hilton Rathel sat down with us last week to talk about how our medical facilities are bracing for this crisis now that a pandemic has been declared by the World Health Organization.
6: This is evolving daily, and so there is a lot of information that's coming out. In some ways, the information is overwhelming because it is evolving so quickly. The World Health Organization did declare this a pandemic earlier this week, and then President Trump restricted flights from much of Europe. And now we have national basketball teams shutting down their season, uh, sports teams shutting down their season. Disneyland just announced in California that they are shutting down. The conferences are being canceled. I actually was supposed to be in Southern California this week, but that conference got uh, canceled. So there is a very widespread awareness of COVID-19 and its potential impact and it has is having a huge impact in Hawaii in the United States and around the globe so we're getting members we're getting calls from our members we're getting calls from all sorts of you know from physicians we're getting calls from businesses about what is going on what are best practices so there there's a lot of questions out there and and sometimes we are you know we don't necessarily have all the answers and so we are going to different sources to get information that we can pass on to our members and help them.
0: So Queens has uh, erected a triage tent. I think initially it was part of a drill, and the decision's been made to keep it up, you know, just to make sure they're ready if there is an onslaught. Of patients you know there's nobody in there now but obviously as people drive by they're seeing this and they're just you know wondering what's up and so I think Kaiser tells me that they're talking about it but no decision has been made so we just want to be ready in case we need to you know act quickly if there are a number of cases that are discovered here in the community
6: well that is correct and actually the tent um you are correct about queens that they had a scheduled tabletop what we call a tabletop exercise which is when a group of people get in a room and go through a scenario and they talk about how they would respond to a particular scenario and obviously the the one that what they're focusing on today was a pandemic such as COVID-19. Um, in regard to the tent they stood up this morning, they're actually doing some screening for COVID-19. So that, that is the purpose of the tent. So they actually have they actually have people who are doing testing for COVID19, doing some screening for te- COVID-19. and we are talking to all of our hospitals. actually we have a call scheduled for, all the acute care hospitals across the state to discuss the value and efficacy of doing screening, essentially, clinics for COVID-19. And, and so we're going to be talking about and we're working with the payers as to, you know, what's covered, what's not covered, uh, how to bill for these type of things. So there is a lot of planning and activity that is going on to ensure that healthcare providers are very well equipped to deal, deal with uh, different scenarios and different contingencies.
0: And probably the Healthcare Association has a long list of things, you you know once a pandemic has been declared and and then you know you folks spring into action so i imagine that we'll be seeing a lot of this over the next few weeks
6: well that is correct we act, we hope obviously that, that we don't actually get it in a pandemic here in hawaii That would be the ideal scenario. We've been very fortunate to date to have a very, very limited number of cases that of of confirmed cases of COVID-19. Our hospitals do prepare and our hospitals and our long-term care facilities, all of our providers prepare throughout the years for different types of disaster scenarios. And so there are, we have emergency communications set up, protocols set up where we can communicate with each other across the state. We stand up our command centers at different institutions. We have different types of communication modalities. So if in the event of a natural disaster, for example, uh, let's say the power went out, we're not dependent on power for communication devices. So we have different forms of communication. So people can keep in touch with each other, hospitals, other uh, healthcare organizations, emergency services personnel. Can keep in touch with each other and coordinate activities. So, the, this you know, preparing for sickness and disease is something that all of our members do. They deal with it on a regular basis. This is an acute episode, or potentially at least in Hawaii, an acute episode, but our medical personnel, our responders are well-prepared and there's so much information coming out from the Department of Health, the centers, uh, the CDC, other organizations and national affiliates. I was on a video conference call this morning with the American Hospital Association at 5.30, our time, and we spent an hour just talking about COVID-19. So, There is a lot of preparation, planning, and activity going on and a heightened awareness of what people should be doing, could be doing. But that being said, the situation is still evolving, and so guidance is evolving from the CDC, Department of Health. In regard to testing, we still have limited testing right now, right as of today. Only the state lab in Tripler can test for COVID-19, clinical labs of Hawaii they started testing as well, but they're having to send the tests. They're collecting tests, but they're having to send them to the mainland right now, and it's approximately four- to five-day turnaround. So, um, and DLS and Kaiser are also working to get their testing up and running for COVID-19. But as of today, only the state lab and tripler can test for COVID-19 in the state, but we, which limits our capability in the state, limits our turnaround time. But the good news is that we can test in the state, and our other labs will be able to test. They are working very, very hard to be able to test in the state and hope to, hope to have that capability within the next one to two weeks, which, which increases the number of tests we can do, and it reduces because we can test more in the state. It reduces the turnaround time. So typically you'd get a turnaround time within the state of about a day, as opposed to four to five days for the clinical labs in Texas, and approximately five to seven days for the state lab if they have to send a test across to the CDC in Atlanta, Georgia.
0: Right, so once we get to that point where our capacity is increased, then we can get a better handle if more people need to get tested. But at this point, it's, it's, it's very limited.
6: Yes, we still have limited capability. And most states, if not all states across the nation, still have limited capability in terms of how many tests they can run in any day. So that is expanding over time. But again this is a you know this is a new virus and so the, the we we didn't have these huge stockpiles of tests so it has taken a while to build up the capability and the CDC and the manufacturers of these test kits they are working incredibly hard to get as many test kits out there as available but it is it is still ramping up across the US and the, the, the US has very stringent guidelines when it comes to testing, and so there, there may be tests in other countries that are more prevalent, but they may not have the same specificity or the same reliability as the tests that are being done here. And that's a decision that the US uh, federal government has made that they do want to have. They do want to ensure that when the testing is done, that there are very high standards and you don't get a lot of false pez- positives or a lot of false negatives.
0: That's a good point because we are reading you know, the headlines online and, and you know, you're know you hearing, oh, this one country is developing a, a rapid result test. you know Another one is relying on lung screenings so they can diagnose people faster and get treatment to those who need it instead of waiting for several days to get the results back. So maybe people may be wondering, well, gee, why can't we just get some from Japan or get some from another country? But that's the reason.
6: Yeah, that's exactly that reason. And and I and I would strongly support that because getting false positives, which is someone tests positive for a disease but they don't have it. That's a false positive. A false negative is if someone has the disease and the test doesn't show it. So you want to have very few false positives and you want to have very few pulse, uh, false negatives. You want the test to be highly accurate highly reliable, have a high degree of specificity. So it's not picking up some other disease because you can get a false positive if you're picking up some other virus, for example, that is not COVID-19 because there are other coronaviruses out there. Right, so, so that's stress. What, yeah, <laughs> that's what we want. That, that is, you know, it's a very, very good practice to do that. And, and the labs and the federal government are working very, very hard to increase the number of tests that are available so that we can screen more individuals.
0: And let's talk about drugs because I think a couple of weeks ago when we talked with you, you folks said that uh, your members were working, you know, very hard to make sure that they had adequate supplies of antibiotics and, and that there, we weren't dealing with a shortage of a particular drug that, um, you know, was vital to our community. Uh, so can you share any more information?
6: Well, there are no antivirals for COVID-19, uh, so there's no specific treatment in terms of an antiviral or a vaccine for COVID-19. The vaccine is still approximately a year off, and uh, we don't know how long it'll be for the antivirals. There are some, there are some pharmaceutical manufacturers that are working. To develop antivirals treatment for COVID-19, Gilead, for example, one of the major U.S. pharmaceutical developers does have a medication which they were using for Ebola, which they believe may have benefit for people with COVID-19, but there are no specific, again, antivirals for COVID-19, which means there is no specific treatment for it right now. There are pharmaceutical manufacturers working on it. In general, we have adequate other drugs, but there is no specific treatment for covid
0: 19 right now. Right. I guess I was just thinking of drugs and the supply chain in China and a lot of the drugs or ingredients that we need for certain things you know comes from that country
6: there have been a couple of shortages identified by the federal government in terms of specific drugs but in general overwhelmingly we still have fortunately most most almost all of the drugs we need in the u.s. are, are still available the good news is that in china the production is starting to ramp back up again because it appears at least according to the numbers that they're reporting in terms of new effect infections and new cases or new cases and and the death rates are, are coming down. And so China is starting to um, to ramp back up again. Now, we don't know how long it will take before they're back into full production. So there still may be some shortages that occur, but there are not widespread drug shortages in the U.S. at this point in time. Okay.
0: So our listeners can be assured of that at this
6: point. That is correct. Yes. Okay.
0: Is there anything else as you uh, reach out to your counterparts uh, in other states and globally. You know, what's the biggie right now? You know, containment is, we're not doing that, but we're, we're trying our best to kind of, I guess, limit the spread.
6: We are doing a lot to limit the spread, and, and that's a huge initiative. And as, as we've said previously, and as the messaging uh, comes out from many, you know, Department of Health or CDC, it's very, very important that people practice good hand hygiene, that they do not touch their nose eyes or mouth with their hands that uh, that haven't been washed that they sneeze you know they cover their mouth and nose when they sneeze or cough uh, those are very, very important things to practice people are wiping down um you know tabletops and things like that uh, flat surfaces which is a good practice before you touch them um so there is a lot of the lot that we can do um it's still, if you haven't had a flu vaccine, it's still a good practice to get the flu vaccine because that does help build up immunity and there's still value because there's still a lot of the flu out there. And um, so there are there are good practices that we can all practice to help spread, help stop the the spread of this disease here in Hawaii.
0: And the concern that folks might have about our most fragile in the community, you know, we have seen this past week where there are just stricter controls, over who comes and goes, you know, at long-term facilities, skilled nursing homes, that kind of a thing. Uh, and so now I imagine we'll be seeing more?
6: That is correct, and that's and that's to protect our very fragile residents and our capoona you know, in, these, in these different settings. So many of our members, if not most of them, have been screening visitors already for a while. So what they're asking visitors to do, some of them may be doing temporal screening or, or um, you know, to, to check their temperature or... They, they, will, um, they will be asking them questions. You know, do you have a fever? Do you have a cough? Do you have shortness of breath? Have you traveled to South Korea, Italy, for example? Have you been in contact with someone who um, has been suspected of having or has been confirmed to have COVID-19? So screening has been going on. Patient screening has been going on for a while. Now we're taking it to that next level where visitors are being restricted um from visiting our long-term care facilities or in the process of being restricted and basically to only non-essential i mean to only essential personnel so um or essential visitors or what is deemed to be an essential visitor And and again that is to really um stop the spread of this of this disease to protect our elderly. now i know that's a challenge but what, you know, family members can do, what friends can do is they can call They can call these residents. If, they, if the resident has a, um, a, a phone or an iPad, um, a smartphone or an iPad, they can FaceTime. They can do things like that. We, you've seen the pictures, I'm sure, of um, people who are, you know, waving outside the window and at least visiting, at least so there's a, you know, they can see people's face. So there are different ways of communicating with these, uh, you know, with, with residents in these facilities. But this is all about protecting them and stopping the spread of the disease because we don't want to have it happen in Hawaii. We want to avoid, if at all possible, uh, what is happening in other states happening here in Hawaii.
0: Right. We don't want to see mandatory quarantines. Uh, Everything's voluntary at this point and and self-quarantine.
6: Well, that is correct, but the, 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 uh, the governor is, and the Department of Health, they are, they are evaluating what is going on. You know, America is a free country, and so, in general, so, you know, we, we, the government respects the freedom of individuals, but at the same time, we want to have reasonable controls and guidelines and policies to protect the public against the spread of disease.
0: Okay, well, we appreciate your time, and then I don't know if you think it'd be useful just to kind of check back every couple of weeks, just as, as this thing, um, you know, changes.
6: Well, this will be evolving, and so we expect this to be in the news for the next couple of months, probably at least. It's interesting. I just read an article from Modern Healthcare where they have a conference in May, the middle of May, and they just announced this morning that they believe that this will be over by, by May. I think the I think the event is on May nineteenth. So that's interesting. That modern healthcare believes that this fire, you know, the, the, at least the worst of this will be over by May 19. So, but it will. The general consensus is that this will be around for a while yet. We will be dealing with this. But what we're all hoping and what we're all working to do, and working very hard to do this, is to stop the spread of this disease here in Hawaii.
0: That was Hilton Rachel of the Hawaii Healthcare Association, which covers hospitals, long term care, and skilled nursing facilities across the state. He's scheduled to speak at a 2 p.m. news conference on a supplemental emergency proclamation expected to be issued by the governor, all prompted by the COVID 19 uh, pandemic. <laughs>
5: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Kumukahua Theatre. The historical drama, The Conversion of Ka'ahu Manu, explores the Queen's personal journey towards adoption of Christianity. Opens this Thursday, kumukahua.org.
7: On this week's On the Media, the President thought he could defeat the narrative of COVID-19 with his usual tactic of, quote, censorship through noise. But the virus is proving resistant. People's lives
8: are going to be disrupted on a daily basis. And as that happens, the alternate reality he's created is inevitably going to implode. Catch On The Media from
7: WNYC.
2: This evening at 7, following The Body Show.
0: Honolulu Lucille. Beat brings us a regular dose of our reality check. Uh, today, reporter Marcel Onray is joining us to talk about a story online today about aviation safety. Good morning, Marcel.
8: Hey, Catherine. How's it?
0: So uh, this is in the news because we've had some recent fatal crashes.
8: Yeah, this was a, a, an investigation, just a, a, a really a quick investigation I did. Uh, we call it a deep dive, I guess. Um, into air tour safety regulations. And really, what it turns out, there's a lengthy record, uh, and you can find it online if you go on the uh, National Transportation Safety Board site or the uh, Federal Aviation Administration's website. Um, there's a lengthy exchange between those two agencies, you know, the, the NTSB is an independent federal agency that was set up to investigate all sorts of transportation crashes around the nation, and the FAA, which has the authority uh, to uh, as oversight over the skies, over our airspace in, in the nation. And if you look at this, there's, there's really a pattern that emerges over uh, more than 30 years, where you see the NTSB constantly pushing for stricter standards specific to air tours, like the helicopter tours, and the uh, plane tours that we see and have very much been, again, in in the news here in Hawaii. And those pushes for stricter standards uh, often get rebuffed by the FAA and by the general aviation industry. So this is kind of a look at that history and what's gone down.
0: Yeah, I mean, we've had some calls from our congressional delegation, right? You know, is our, are our sky safe? Um, are there enough rules in place to make sure that you know, public safety is public is is safe, right?
8: So yeah, you know, um, Representative Ed Case, since he's gotten back into office, this has been one of the key things that he's actually focused on. He's made it a a big issue with with his constituents, and he's got legislation that that he's introduced that he actually introduced last year that looks to make uh, standards safer. And one of the things that he's got in there echoes what the NTSB has been pushing for really since as early as 1986 when you had a pretty tragic air tour crash or two air tours basically uh, collided over the Grand Canyon, killing 25 people. And at least since then, you've seen the uh, the NTSB push for all air tours to be covered under the same strict standards. Now, currently there are some loopholes that allow air tours, whether those be helicopter or airplanes, fixed wings, to fall under the more looser, the, the weaker general aviation standards, which are pretty basic. Now, they do have some restrictions, but it, it, it basically doesn't have the same level of maintenance uh oversight and surveillance pilot training and uh federal oversight things like that Uh, most air tours there is a designation where you have to have uh you know stricter standards on that but there are loopholes and the ntsb has called for years to close that and actually um congressman case's legislation would look to do that as well the yeah, go ahead
0: well consumers really don't know that right they're, they're just assuming that hey you know FAA is over or overseeing that, that we're good to go we're on vacation we want to go up and uh, you know see the sites
8: right that was that was a big thing i wanted to hit on was I, I don't even think people are aware that you you know there is the the possibility uh if you're in one of these air tour uh companies these these flights that you are on a more lax Regulation or standard than some of the others. Uh, a key way to know is if you're only going kind of up around 25 miles, uh, you know, from your point of departure, we're on these these small islands. So a lot of times these these tour flights can afford to, you know, not have to cover tremendous amounts of, of uh, space. And if you, you know, take off and land at the same spot those are really the, the key restrictions to being on the more lax standards.
0: Right, and if you're saying, well, you know, we could up the standards, but it's going to cost.
8: Yeah, so the the industry has really pushed back saying that this would put a lot of them out of business and and the folks I talked to said this would add many tens of thousands of, of dollars more to their annual bottom line and that, you know, they they're heavily incentivized to um you know, to to make their to keep their businesses safe and not have crashes yeah, but we're, we're really at kind of an inflection point right where again we're seeing another spate of crashes uh the skydiving crash this was a very big thing with the the ntsb when they came over here and and yeah there's you're kind of seeing a general call for just making these safer ntsb says these kind of standards would make things safer
0: so. right yeah and i know you and i have done our share of, of doing interviews with grieving families and uh and it's tough so you want to make it safe for everybody
8: Sure. Absolutely.
0: Thanks so much, Marcel. That was reporter Marcel Andre with today's Reality Check. You can read his story online at civilbeat.org.
5: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Manoa Valley Theatre, presenting Desperate Measures, a musical comedy based on Shakespeare's Measure for Measure, set in the Wild West, opens this Thursday. ManoaValleyTheatre.com
7: America, are we ready for some swing states? I'm Brian Lehrer from WNYC. Join me and listeners from around the country for a national call-in as Ohio, Florida, and new in the swing state category, Arizona, plus the blue state of Illinois, hold their primaries. Call in with your thoughts on the campaigns and the state of our country. Listen and participate. America, are we ready?
2: Starting Tuesday afternoon at
7: 1.
0: This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. For this week's Stargazer, we hear about a weather-related extreme event happening around a planet and a distant star. Here's astronomer Christopher Phillips and HPR's Dave Lawrence with more.
3: Stargazer time. Our weekly look into the massive universe around our tiny planet and also things we can try and spot in our dark skies. As usual, fortunate to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips at our disposal, and we've got him on the line right now. Hey Chris, welcome back. What do you have this week? Hey Dave, it's good to be here.
4: So this week, stargazers, a trio of morning planets, will grace the skies before dawn. Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn can all be seen from around 3.30am onwards, and will be visible till sunrise. The moon this week is a mere waning crescent, and will make for a pleasant sight amongst the evening stars.
3: And this week, as we're going through a lot of extreme events here on Earth, not necessarily weather-related, I understand you've got a weather-related extreme event to tell us about.
4: Yes, it's a planet around a distant star 390 light-years away. And it's somewhat of an extreme planet. And it goes by the catchy name of WASP-76b. It was recently announced that spectroscopic data gathered by astronomers from the Center for Astrobiology in Spain has given us some insight into the weather on that world, and boy is it weird.
3: And weird can come in a lot of shapes and sizes. What's going on over there?
4: Well, the data suggests that the planet is rich in iron vapor in its atmosphere which is very different to our own earth which of course has water vapor in our atmosphere which condenses to fall as rain.
3: And can I deduct this is rain made of iron over there?
4: It sure looks that way and you're probably wondering how on earth that happens. Well WASP-76b is very hot and it has one side always facing its star and the other side always facing the dark of space. This extreme heat causes elements like iron to evaporate into the atmosphere.
3: Raining iron. That wouldn't happen on earth though huh? because it's too cold.
4: Exactly. Now what's interesting is that this extreme heat also generates high winds, and these winds carry the clouds of iron vapor towards the night side, where they cool, condense, and fall as rain.
3: And try to paint a picture for us, because I'm not imagining it's chunks of iron coming out of the (laughs) sky. Describe for us what it's actually like.
4: You're absolutely right, it's not like that at all. The iron is in liquid form, so it's essentially rain. And if you could stand the intense heat, you'd find yourself singing in the iron rain if you went for a stroll.
3: Well, a very interesting stargazer and something a little bit lighter during these uh, very serious times. I appreciate it. Christopher Phillips, thank you.
6: You're all welcome, Dave.
3: And I'm Dave Lawrence. We will look forward to catching you next week. And you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer
5: comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for the Natural Energy Laboratory of Hawaii Authority's Hawaii Gateway Energy Center in Kailua, Kona. Ferrarochoi.com
0: earlier in the show we told you about papakalea beach this wonder of nature is found on the big island's most southern tip in the kau district visitors can either view the shoreline from the beach parking lot or um, with a hike over a uh, two-and-a-half-mile area to the secluded beach. In order to protect the surrounding land that hosts many culturally significant sites from damage, vehicles are prohibited from driving to Papakalea. The hike isn't hard, but there is no sun cover. Be advised it will get hot, drink a lot of water, and slather on the sunscreen. Green sand is formed by the erosion and concentration of the semi-precious stone olivine originating from the nearby Mahana cinder cone. Green sand beaches are rare. The United States is home to a couple, Papakolea Beach on Hawaii Island and Talafofa Beach in Guam. You can also find these olive-hued beaches in Norway and the Galapagos Islands. And our winner today, Norika Wada of Honolulu. She tells us she's a rock hound, so she really perked up with today's quiz. That's today's quiz. If you have one, send it to TalkBack at hawaiipublicradio.org. start to see the impact on the sports world with this coronavirus Uh, one big concern is the fate of the japan 2020 olympics which is set to start in july it is to be a showcase for surfing a sport born here in the islands hawaii's john john florence and carissa moore have qualified for the team usa Uh, they've been dubbed Aloha Ambassadors, sharing the story of surfing with Aloha. We caught up with Carissa Moore recently at an event put on by the Friends of Kiwalo's. Now, that surf spot is where she honed her skills as a surf grom. She helped to post a sign at the point. It says Surf with Aloha, and it's a sign that uh, old-timers hope will be the first of many across the state.
6: Yes, I was really excited about this Surf with Aloha event here at Kiwalo Basin. This is where I grew up surfing and where I still, um, it's still my training grounds. And I feel like this is, the people here, they're an extension of my family. And um, I don't know, it's just, it's just a nice night to gather to celebrate this place and to um, educate each other about, you know, surf etiquette and, you know, give back to the future generations. I'm I'm just really looking forward to going to the Olympics and hopefully representing Hawaii in a really positive way. And I mean, I don't really have too many expectations for results wise, but I would love to give it my best, the competition. And yeah, I just, I don't know. I haven't really thought too much more besides that.
0: Do you have your boards picked out? <laughs> no, not yet. <laughs> now Moore has become a role model out in the waves and across the globe. And Hawaii is proud to have her represent the islands. We talked to her dad, Chris, about the lessons learned at Kiwalos to get invited back to that area. He couldn't be prouder of his daughter, recalling the surf sessions as he tried to nurture her skills in a sport that he loved. We also heard from Gary Moniz, dad of two surfers, Isaiah and Seth, who was dubbed recently the Rookie of the Year. Uh, first, here's Chris Moore. I don't
7: know if I want to use the word strategically, but strategically, it just makes sense. For us to get along, you know, and because we wanted to come back and we wanted to to practice here, so um, it was to try and do things with a um, with surfing etiquette. So if you're um, paddling back out, there's a certain way to do that. If you're catching, if you're in the lineup, there's a certain way to catch waves, and um, so it just was a way that I felt made sense. For, for Carissa, almost in a selfish way. Get along with everybody, wait your turn, be friendly, and then you'll be welcomed back and you get the training and practice. For me, in my generation of growing up surfing, it was, you either come to the party, you get invited to the luau, or you get sent home. As a child surfing on the south shore, or north shore, there was, a place of respect and that was from the guy that was a little older than you or the uncles. It was pretty black and white. So you learn really quick the etiquette, the international etiquette goes far with sharing waves, surfing and earning your spot. So I've, I've always, that always stayed with me and one of the main reasons for me was Duke Kahnemoko, Uncle Duke. He was known for sharing the love spirit. He took surfing to Australia, all over the world, and he shared that. And as a little boy, that stayed at me. It really affected me. And one of my goals was to one day get invited to the classic. And that still stayed me. So with my kids, fast forward with my kids, um, it was always showing the respect to the next surfer, especially the uncles. There's an etiquette, and the boys know who's who and how the pecking order is. And it takes work to get there, but it starts from Waikiki to Kewalos, maybe to Haleiwa, and then when you start surfing Sunset pipe, when you travel in the world, you do the same thing, especially when you go around the world and in your
0: backyard. That was Gary Moniz and Chris Moore. Uh, surfer Keuny Downing, whose father George paved the way for big wave surfing, sees passing the torch this way.
2: Surfing's for life. You know, it, it's, it's one sport, whether you're six years old or 90 years old, you can still do it. And you got to have some love for each other because if we're going to keep getting more and more people, Sooner or later, we'll reach carry capacity and if we don't have a loa, then who knows what it looks like. The role models have to instill in the, the, the keiki as soon as possible because they need to learn it so they can spread it within their own peer pre- group. You know, you, you get the, the, the older ones, or kapunas, whatever you want to call them. Sometimes it's like my kids, hard to listen to the old person. But if they gotta listen to themselves, then there's a better uh, grasp of what is really being trying, being said.
0: Tonight we've got uh, some um, up-and-coming uh, surfers. Uh, Carissa Moore, you know, we, we had Rel Sun as a wonderful role model, the Queen of Makaha, and now we have uh, Carissa Moore.
2: Oh yeah, you know, and ro- role models, and Seth Moniz. Um, I think they, they'd be great role models, but the role models They've got to do it because they want to. And I think you become a role model by your actions, not necessarily by a title. So yeah, Carissa and Seth are, are two perfect examples for Kiwalo or for the whole state, as you can you can be at the top of your game, but yet you can still spread a law.
0: Right, it's being humble uh, in an ocean that is mightier than you. Oh yeah, oh yeah.
2: You learn that real quick. I mean, for me, if it wasn't for surfing, I don't know what, what I would have been. You know, surfing taught me so much. It taught me about myself. It gave me self-esteem. It, it, it told me when I did something wrong, there was automatic consequences. And the, the older I got, the consequences were harder and they hurt more, but you learn from it. And it, in the long run, when I step on land, land's easier to navigate compared to the ocean.
0: And you had your dad to kind of help you find your way.
2: Oh yeah, my dad helped me find my way. I was 14 years old and we we're going surfing in And Makah was about 12 to 15 feet. But to me, it looked like 40 feet. And he put me in a spot. And I said, oh great, my dad put me in a safe spot. You know, I won't get the real big ones, but I can get the medium sized ones. Well, as I looked at him paddle, he paddled over a wave and he was smiling. The next wave broke 15 feet outside of me, drove me to the bottom. I hit the bottom. I had to swim in. I was crying. I got to the beach, and I wanted no more part of it. And this is my father. He says, Keone, the worst that could happen just happened to you. Now you can start to learn how to surf big waves. So yeah, I, I had a robot, but it th- threw me in the fire first. Make sure you knew your place. Oh yeah, and but what I found with that concept, it really made sense after. Because I see a lot of people, especially when we get into ways of consequence, they're really timid to move into the lineup because they don't know that what the outcome is going to be. And so his way of letting me understand the outcome made it a lot easier for me then to learn how to, how to ride big waves.
0: And talk about this location and Kupu and, and how it all kind of comes together here.
2: Well, this location, when I was growing up surfing here, this was a dump. This was a mound of dirt It had pilings as a, the backdrop to hold the dirt in. And there was nothing here. And when I came 30 years later, how pretty this place has, has gotten to. And, you know, now it's just it's, it's a spot that everybody wants to come. Where else can you come and get showers, restrooms, you know? Parking. So, oh, yeah. So th- th- those are all pieces that are, are important to the whole. I remember my dad and John Kelly. They always said surf sites should be ocean parks, and they should be treated like a park. And this is probably the first one that you've really seen that acts as a park. Surf with law is kind of a creed that came even from Duke. And the idea is that we all love it. We all have to learn how to share it.
0: Mahalo to friends of Aloha for being proactive as surfing um, gets an intern- uh, put on the international stage. All this week on The Conversation, we are reaching out to athletes and their families about the uncertainty he- uh, ahead with the coronavirus. Stay tuned for those stories. You know, we've run out of time, but join us tomorrow as we talk about unemployment claims with so many jobs being squeezed by COVID-19. Are you affected by the coronavirus and the shutdowns? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Share your story. Head to Facebook or tweet us, and email works too. Find our archived shows online. Look under HPR News and Talk for the conversation on hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.